0: I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Maybe you recognize these words. Space, the final frontier what does it go on to say? These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations And to the chagrin of all of us grammarians out there to boldly go where no man has gone before. Does anyone know why that's incorrect? To boldly go? to go boldly, it's a split infinitive. Anyway, it sounds better the way they wrote it, so we'll go ahead and leave it. What they left out of a mission statement, often the very most important piece of a mission statement is the why. Why is it that they are supposed to go out on a five-year mission? Why is it that they're supposed to seek out new civilization? Why is it that they're supposed to seek out strange and new lands? They don't give one. So you're left to guess what is the point that they're trying to achieve. Are they seeking to spread a message? Are they seeking to learn? That certainly is something that we do when we interact with different peoples and different cultures. But why? You know, it's always bothered me why. We need to understand in our lives that we too have been sent on a mission and it's not just five years long. We've been sent to seek out new people, to seek out strange new civilizations and to boldly go where perhaps no other Christian has gone before. Now, when I say this, it may mean to you, I go to the mission field cross-culturally. I go someplace to literal, strange new lands and new civilizations. But the truth is, is that every place we go within our sphere of influence is touching somebody with a message. The message of the gospel. The message of our testimony. You see, we are each given a mission, we're each given a message. As we'll see, it's a little awkward, but we're each given a misery, but we're also and equally so each given a meaning. So today we're in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. In the previous weeks leading up to this, I had it up on the screen, I made a mistake today, so you got to listen really, really well, or actually use the Pew Bibles this time. If you don't have those, you can take out your phone. Don't text. Don't text. I know, I have vision about these things. And you're gonna go ahead and read along with me, Ephesians 1 through 13. To set this up a little bit, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, if you recall, talks about how we are saved by grace. Paul is talking about what is happening behind the scenes in the spiritual realm and in our hidden heart when God opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel, to the truth that we are children of God. Verses 11 through 22, we talked about how does that play out in our day-to-day, that not only are we saved by grace, but we are brought near together, forming a new community. If you remember, we're made insiders by grace. And today we're going to learn about how we are each given a ministry by grace. Now, many of you think That uh, ministry, well, isn't that what I do? Well, that is what I do, but a ministry is also what you are to do. As we learn in the next coming weeks, part of what God has given the church as ministers are for the equipping of the saints, you guys, that you would do the ministry of the spreading of the gospel. And so it's important to know that. So if you'll turn with me, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, it says this, hear God's word. as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We read about it here. Paul's mission, at least verse 8 says so, that Paul's mission was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to preach the gospel to those who were of non-Jewish origin. It's quite a departure from his previous life. If you recall who Paul was, his real name, his first name was Saul, a Hebrew name. And it was turned into Paul, a Greek name. Paul was raised from an early age in the line of Pharisees. He was taught the law of God in the Torah and how that law was applied and laid out through the rest of the Hebrew Bible. He learned how to think philosophically. He learned how to debate and think legally and logically. He learned to speak Greek, which was the lingua franca, the language of the day. Very similar to how English is today around the world. Greek was in that day the same. But the Paul we read here in Ephesians is not the Saul who was. He had an experience. Something changed him. He had a direct encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on what is known as the road to Emmaus. Not only were his eyes opened, both metaphorically and literally, but he was humbled as he talked about earlier in this book, having the eyes of the Ephesians' hearts open to the truth, Paul was the recipient of that very thing for which he prayed for his readers. He was humbled. It was not just this experience, though, and this is important for us to know, it's not just this experience that made Paul credible or made Paul equipped. Paul had been cultivated his whole life for this very moment and didn't know it. Like I said, he was a Pharisee. He understood all of the Old Testament, all of the prophecies that would point to a Messiah. He probably knew them by heart. Think about that. He spoke Greek. He was a Greek citizen, so it gave him unique access to be able to enter in places where other non-Greeks would never be able to go. And all of these aspects, if we think about it, were present before his conversion. Not only was Paul prepared, but Paul recognized that his mission was an outcome of God's grace to him. Verse 2, he had a stewardship of God's grace. He was entrusted with something valuable. God said, Paul, I have something for you and only you can bring it and you are going to be my forerunner just as Christ was my forerunner to the world. You are going to go to strange new lands to seek out new civilizations and to go boldly. Verse three, he was given the mystery and how it was made known to him by revelation. Paul did nothing to receive it. His eyes were opened by grace. He was made a minister in verse seven by grace, according to the gift of of God's grace. And in verse 8, he was given the grace to preach. Because everything Paul did was by grace and through grace, he realized, perhaps better than any of us, that he brought nothing to the table. That in the end, all of that preparation he had growing up, ever, never thinking that it would be for the cause of Christ, all of these things happened for a reason but in the end, it was by God's grace. His humility is evident here, the least of all the saints. I think sometimes we read things like that and we say, he's just being nice. I mean, in our conversation, we say similar things like this, but he means it. You read it again and again, you see again and again, he has the evidence of humility in his life because he properly understands what grace is and how he did nothing to receive it. So not only did Paul have a mission, Paul had a message. And that message had two aspects in his content. The first was the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ is the fact that the Gentiles, those who are non-Jews, are included in God's plan. I'll give you a brief history of salvation. Uh, the plan of salvation here is that... Where do I even start? I don't even know how to start. If I start at the beginning, we'll be here all day. God heard the cries of the Jews as they were enslaved in Egypt. And God, by his grace, pulled the Jews out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea and in the ten plagues that we read about, the miraculous signs and wonders of his working to call a people out to himself. Think about that in your own life, in the slavery of Egypt. Doing a job that seems impossible, making bricks with no straw, as the, as the Jews were called to do, forced to do. How life can feel so Empty and ineffective. We're forced to work harder and harder. And then one, God, one day, God, by His grace, pulls us out, parting the Red Sea, as it were, and taking us to the other side so that we would be a people unto Him, so that our lives would be a reflection of gratitude for what He did by His grace. It wasn't as if the Jews had earned their salvation out of Egypt, their deliverance out of Egypt. It was by grace. So God calls them out into the wilderness where they continue to rebel and God has to continue to work with them again and again. Sound like us? Sounds like us. Ultimately, one day, when we give up our fight and we rest in Christ, even in the here and now, we enter the promised land. When we trust Christ and we see that he is the way, when we give everything else up and we trust that he is it, we get saved. We finally stand in that rest in which he has promised us. This was given, this promise was given through the Jewish nation that he called out to make a light unto the nations. But the Jews took at the to heart that it was something about them. God again and again warns them, it was nothing that you did, you were helpless. In Ezekiel 16, he talks about how, a Jew, how Israel was like a baby laid out to die. No one loved it. It had not been cleaned or washed or cared for or fed. It was crying in the wilderness with no one to hear. That's us. And God passing by looked down on this baby and had mercy upon it and nurtured and grew it up. And this is talking about the state, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And they were to be a light unto the nations. And so the idea that, because what it had become, the idea that the Gentiles would be invited into the family of God and not have to do anything other than believe to get there was a scandal, a scandal. And so Paul's message was that the, that the Gentiles are included in God's plan. There's nothing we must bring to the table. There's no religious right we must do. There's no baptism we must take. There's no anything that we need except trust in Jesus. That's it. Paul didn't just deliver that message. He packaged it, though. That's the second aspect of his message. That package was in his testimony He talks about as the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I had written briefly in verse 3. Our testimony is so powerful, so powerful. And that's why the world is geared to make you not share it. Everything in this culture and in this world is telling us to be quiet. There's a phrase some of us know, it's called the heckler's veto. It's being in a room of a bunch of people who say, this should be one way, but we know the truth, but we're not going to stand up and say, no, it shouldn't be because the other 99 in the room want blood. So we say nothing. Even though the truth is right, even though the truth is there, even though the truth is obvious, it's so easy to be quiet And so we often do. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about in the political realm or talking about in these grand situations where we're forced to stand up. I'm talking about in our day-to-day. I'm talking about the way we interact with our unbelieving family. I'm talking about the way we act at work when our friends are bantering and doing the things that they do, those who don't know the Lord yet. How do we act when we're around them? And how do we portray ourselves? Are we a manifestation Are we a demonstration of God's grace and God's goodness? Our testimony has power. In the book of Revelation, it says that we, the church, defeat the beast by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. It's not just Christ died, it's Christ died for me. And this is why this is powerful. And let me show you and tell you what he did. Paul's experience and testimony of Christ on the Emmaus Road authenticated his message. Because let me tell you, coming to church on Mother's Day means nothing. It means nothing. What does it mean when we're out there on June 23rd? I don't know, or any other day. How is our life a demonstration of who God is and what he's called us? How are we portraying the truth through our lives and that we've encountered the Lord? This is what happened to Paul. As we read the scripture, we can see again and again, Paul giving testimony that was not simply a verbal testimony. He said in one point, he says, you recall when I was with you, you were like a mother. I was like a mother to you. I nurtured you. I didn't place any burdens on you. I show... In fact, at one point, Paul can even say, therefore be imitators of me. Can you say the same thing in your own life? Can we talk to our friends who might not know the Lord or who are babies in Christ? Or can we look at our children and say, do what I do and be sure that they're going to do the right thing? That's convicting to me. I don't know about to you. That's convicting. It's evident in the mystery that he gives of the gospel and it's evident in the testimony. And it's evident in the fact that Paul is writing this letter from perhaps one of the most unappetizing places, prison. And this is Paul's misery. Paul's misery. Paul is sitting in a prison in Rome. He's given the opportunity as a Greek citizen to sort of not have to, or a Roman citizen, to not have to uh, stand this trial. Yet he chooses to go and stand before the king, the emperor, Nero, And so he chooses to go and he's languishing, maybe that's a strong word, but he's certainly sitting in a prison. Listen, no matter how good the prison is, it's prison, okay? He's in prison. And he's writing to these people that he loves so much and he cares for so much. And he says in verse one, he starts out, I, Paul, a prisoner, on behalf of you Gentiles, And he tells his little parenthesis through all of the verses in the very last verse so do not lose heart for what I am suffering, it's your glory. Paul, even though he's in misery, he's in suffering because he doesn't deny it. He says, I'm suffering. Do not lose heart over my suffering. He knows it's for a reason, he knows it's for something bigger and better and beyond. The church has for too long insinuated to seekers and members alike that it's possible to live a truly and authentic Christian life without suffering. This is perhaps one of the most dangerous lies that we can believe when we, I'm going to go to church and live a good life. Why? So I don't have to suffer so much. Come to church and suffer. In fact, that was the lesson we were trying to teach by having the Aaron, not on during the singing portion. <laughs> We're going to try to relate with the other 99.9% of Christians around the world on a Sunday morning. When we are called to live for Christ, we are called to suffer with Him. When we are called to live the Christian way, it will necessarily bring suffering. And what Paul is doing is he's reframing it for his readers, for the Ephesians that they would know and that they would be able to see this is how Paul processes this. So this is how I should process it as well. The way we suffer in front of others, the way we frame our suffering, critical for people to understand what it means to walk the Christian road. But Paul's suffering was not in vain. Paul had a meaning. There was a meaning to what he was suffering. It is to your glory. Paul knew that fulfilling his mission meant eternal life to those who would hear and receive the gospel. Think about that. Sometimes the simplest things, I I just glance right over them. I'll read it and I'll say it, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's true. But I don't let it sink in. This conversation that I'm having with a friend at work, this interaction that I'm having with my child or with another family member could lead to eternal life. We keep it couched in the here and now. We say, well, of course we want him to live a good life. We want them to have a good way of living. We do the right thing. You know what I mean? Be the right kind of person. Go to church on Sundays, blah, 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 blah. Eternal life. He knew that without his witness, And without the revelation of the mystery that had been given to him, people would remain blinded and ignorant, just like the people within your sphere of influence. No one will hear the message of the gospel unless you speak it and live it for them. And Paul, of all people, knew that God's grace was sufficient to get him through, and it's sufficient for you as well, even unto death. As we read these words written in probably around 62 AD, within the next couple of years, Paul is beheaded for his witness of Christ, his witness to Christ. This is how deadly serious our responsibility is with the mission, the mystery, everything that we carry that's been entrusted to us by grace. You might say, I don't want that. Well, I don't want that either but I don't think I have a choice. I certainly could deny it and say no and kick the can down the road and try to avoid it. But in the end, something has happened to me. And if you trust and have received the Lord, something's happened in you too. It's there. It's not as if you have to wait for it to come. God's calling you. God's saying there's more. God's telling you there's more to this life and that the stakes are high when we step into that suffering, when we're willing to go wherever God sends us, to whomever God sends us, our life takes on a meaning we never thought possible. We never thought possible. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean? So we've talked about what this meant for Paul, but for us is first of all, we all have a mission. We all have been called to something. The question is, is what is yours? Not all of us have the same mission. You see, each of us carry the same gospel. Christ died for sinners. Christ was made sin who knew no sin that we should be the righteousness of God. This is the eternal gospel that's existed, it says, from time past, eternity past. This was God's plan. But how is that gospel contextualized in your life? Okay, all of you know, you know my background. I have a unique entry point for people who have suffered, who have been to prison, who've suffered with drug abuse, who have lived all around crappy lives. I just said that, I'm sorry. Crummy lives. Even though Paul used that word in Greek, but we won't go there. Each of you have a specific inroad with a specific new people and new civilization. Each of you, you might not know it, but God wants to tell you what that is. Some of you might say, well, I don't ever had anything hard. I've always had a good life. Became a Christian at four, lived a great life, went to college, Ever a great family, this and that. Then those are your people. Those are your people. All of us have a specific mission that God has prepared us for in our lives to go boldly and to bring the message. We often have clarity on our mission by accident. Sometimes things just happen in our lives sometimes things occur. We never thought this is how it should be, but God does something and we realize it's opened a door. I often counsel people and have counseled people in the past that talk about, well, you know, I've made this mistake. It's a big mistake. I carry a record around with me. I have this addiction that I'm often, that I'm struggling with the rest of my life or I'm always having to be cognizant of. I have this mental illness that I'm always having to deal with. It's getting in the way of everything. And I'm just so unhappy that this happened. All I can focus on is the bad. I want to tell you today that Jesus Christ is asking you to capitalize on this weakness that he's gifted you with so that you can reach strange new worlds and new civilizations that no one else can go to. No one can go to in some of the secular groups that talk about drug addiction 12-step groups one of the ideas there is that nothing equals the therapeutic value of one addict or alcoholic helping another one sufferer helping another sufferer there's something in that that god uses to bring credibility it's paul's testimony to people not only do we all have a mission we all have a message That message is God's testimony to you. This is how things were. This is what happened. This was my moment or this was my season that God began to transition me into a new way of life. Your story might be, it's been a long 30 years, but God's finally got me to just the beginning of the road. As we reflect on our lives, do we see God's hand? And do we see how God has moved us from how we were to what has happened and how things are now? People ask me that sometimes, how are things now? Hard, hard, but they're good. And I understand why. And because I have that meaning and I can relate to what God is doing and I see that God is using me in a big way for eternal purposes, that I'll suffer gladly. Ways that you can do this. I mean, some of these are just really, you can write your message out. In one of the discipleship things that I was doing, it talked about writing like a 15-minute testimony, a five-minute testimony, and a 30-second testimony. I've never given any of those three to anybody. What it did do Is it clarified for me in my mind and my heart what God actually did? Places that God worked that I never reasoned or thought that he did and places that he did work and changed me that were much more impactful. So think it out, write it out. But ultimately, your message is going to be validated by the way you live. I heard this somewhere. I don't even know if this is the right saying, but people will not do as you say, they'll do as they see. We must be willing to suffer. We can have a mission and and be on that mission and carry a message, but if we're not willing to go anywhere, it's all for naught. In the end, suffering in this life is inevitable. It's part of living in a sin-sick world. There's no way we're getting out of suffering. The funny thing about suffering is it's amplified by our sinful attempts to circumvent it. I know God is calling me here this does not look good. I know this is going to hurt. So I'm going to choose to go left or go right to go around it. And we end up bringing more suffering upon us. In the end, we see the suffering that God is calling us to is made sweet by his presence. But when we depart from him, all it does is hurt. And hurt for no reason is not nearly as good as hurt for a reason. Ultimately, suffering is the pathway to peace that we so desire. But you want a life that's good and has the shalom of God. Shalom in the Hebrew means not just the cessation of hostilities, but everything is right in the world. That means there's stuff floating on around us. That means there's crises happening, but I have a sense of serenity in me. I have a sense of peace. I I recognize that Jesus is with me. So it's okay. Suffering is the pathway to that place. And in the end, suffering for the Lord is a privilege. When we're on mission for God, there is going to be necessary and inevitable clashes of two worlds. When we interact with people who think differently than us, who believe differently, who have different priorities than we do, and we're seeking on a mission from the Lord to impute or to to encourage others to live in the same way, the way that God calls us, there's going to be clashes. That's what happens. (laughs) We know it well with our unbelieving family, the ones we love so much. Those are the ones we wanted so badly for. And those are the places that we seem to see the most crash, the most dissonance, the most conflict. We have to be willing to have that pain from dismissal to exclusion to ridicule and yes, even physical pain and death. But our suffering is not in vain. It creates character and endurance. It produces hope within us. It reminds us that this world is broken and there's a world to come that's not. And that world that comes is through Christ. Suffering purifies our souls if we let God use it. And it can show us the danger of sin and motivate us back to God. But we struggle with this idea of suffering. We struggle to carry this message, don't we? I mean, why? What is it that is it for you? I mean, I think of a few items here, but I think it's very specific to the individual. There might be one relationship that's holding you back. There might be one fear that's keeping you from taking that very first step of faith and obedience to the Lord, that step that would transform your life and give it the meaning that you so strongly desire. First one's ignorance. We just don't know the message. We don't know what to say. It's not a fear issue. We're willing to say it. We're willing to go. We just have no idea what to say. Get in your Bible. Get in your Bible, the answers are there. Ask God to help you understand it. Lord, what does this mean? If it comes back with no answer, you're not ready to know it yet. That was a huge relief for me. When I opened the Bible and realized that I didn't understand 90% of it at the beginning, more than that, 95%, I just knew that it said something that sounded nice. It sounded biblical, but I didn't know what it meant. How did it all work together? When someone told me, you don't need to know all that stuff. All you need to know is what you know such relief. Start. Just dig in somewhere. There are books that can help you, give you guidance and framework. I'd encourage you to go to growth groups that study the Bible. Go to a Bible study here at Grace Bible. Go to a Bible study someplace else. It's all the Bible. It's all the Bible. Begin to learn. Ask God to teach you. Be willing to ask others to show you the way. Just begin. If you don't have the tools, take the initiative. Find books, ask for help. Second, apathy. Apathy looks a lot of ways. First of all, it might look like unbelief. It's an ever-present danger in the Christian life. We talked about this a few months ago in one of our sermons, the wilderness of unbelief. It's not just a, uh, I don't have fear, I have doubt. It's a willful unwillingness to believe The Bible might be true, but it's not true for me. I know God can protect those people, but God can't protect me. The love of comfort. In our community, this is a real danger. I drive around our community, I see bigger houses going up, more houses going up, more yards being filled up to build. We're all in a build. And I'm not criticizing that in and of itself. It's always the why. Why? Are we seeking to insulate ourselves from the dangerous world out there? Are we seeking to create a life for ourselves and even for our children that's idyllic to a place that's dangerous? In the end, you have to ask yourself, what's more dangerous? Somebody who lives in a great community who doesn't trust in the Lord or somebody who lives in a terrible community who's walking with Jesus. Who's in more danger? Sometimes it's plain old self-centeredness. I don't know about you, that's the root of my issue. How does this affect me? How can I get what I want? I'll put nice words on it, we'll Christianize it, and we'll ask God to co-sign it. But in the end, it's gonna be what I want. All the while, never considering that Christ died for me, Paul was beheaded for me. From prophet to parent, People have suffered and struggled for you in order to bring you to this place now. Come from other countries, brave transitions and travels and voyages that would kill a lot of us to be here to provide a better life. What are we doing with it? Living an other centered life is the only way to live. There are days I feel not good. Sometimes there are days that you call me and tell me you don't feel good. And if you have, you know that I've told you to call someone and ask them how their day is. There's something in the power of calling others, of interacting with others and saying, despite how we're feeling, how can I be of service to you? How can I love you well today? Can I pray for you? How's your day? What'd you have for dinner? It gets us out of ourselves and it grows the community that Christ intended for us to have, especially here at Grace Bible Church. And finally, we have a lukewarm love for the Lord. It's a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place. In the book of Revelation, there was a church that had lukewarm love for the Lord, and Jesus said, And I'm gonna spew you out of my mouth, neither hot nor cold. Hot coffee, cold coffee. You never go someplace and, can I get lukewarm coffee? There have been times in my own life that I've been lukewarm and I knew the danger of it and I knew how good it feels to be walking with Jesus, even in the hard things. So I got on my knees and begged him. We see it in Psalm 51. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Lord, you got to do it. I can't muster these feelings up. You ever tried to muster feeling up for the Lord? It's fake. It doesn't last. God's got to do it. God's got to implant it. We pray for each other that we would be fanning the flame of faith. We ask God to give us it. And he will. Finally, fear. We fear suffering. We fear rejection. We feel failure, maybe we fear success. Or we fear the loss that we think is going to come with gaining the Lord Jesus, with walking with the Lord Jesus. There might be a relationship that we have to sever for it to be finally open to us to walk with the Lord in the fullness of what that means. Bottom line is, is that who we are in Christ, because we are children, if you have trusted and believed, if you've received Jesus as your savior and said, I, you're mine, I'm taking, you're mine. We are grafted into the family of God and given a new identity in Christ. That identity precedes everything, everything. I don't want to lose this relationship. I don't want to give this up. I'm going to trust the Lord because I'm a child of God and God is going to give me through Christ the very thing that I'm afraid to lose. I don't want to be ridiculed. Jesus tells me who cares what other people say because you're mine. When we view this world and our walk, our mission through the eyes of Christ and our identity in Christ, we can endure anything, anything. So what we do when we're in these situations, when we realize that there are things in our way, when we realize that there's something holding us back from walking in faith and obedience to what Jesus has called us, we confess it. We say, Lord, I have been committing this sin and I see that I have been avoiding your will for my life. Why? Because I believed my way was better. But I want to do it your way. I thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me and for this sin. The thing that I failed to do, Christ did perfectly. Perfectly. Lord, when I was afraid to go, when I was afraid of loss, Christ went and Christ lost his majesty in heaven. He lost his human relationships here for a moment in his very life that I might live. And because of the sinlessness that could not keep him dead, but raised him from the grave, I am seen as righteous. Now, Lord, give me the grace to go forward. Why do I say it like this? It's not, Lord, I messed up. Forgive me. I'm going to try harder next time. We do that again and again and again. Do you recall this was the two-step dance? We're looking for a three step dance. We're looking for a gospel waltz, let's say. I got, we could probably do the gospel waltz to a 6 8, couldn't we? Maybe. It'd be a little weird. What'd you say? The Viennese waltz. Come on. It's got to be Christianized. You got to make it. Repent. Trust in Jesus' death and go forward in that grace. If we do that, if we get a handle on this, if we recognize that it's by grace we have these things, it's through grace we keep them, and we have a mission given to us by grace, we can boldly go where no one, no Christian, has gone before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word that reveals to us that your child, Paul, loved you, loved Christ so much that he was willing to go any place for anybody at any time that they would hear the gospel, the truth, the mystery revealed from ages past that the Gentiles, Lord, even us are part of your plan. Each and every one of us are part of your plan and it's your will, Lord, you tell us that each of us would come to repentance in faith in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the mystery that is the gospel. Lord, places that we don't see truth, Lord, give us truth. Places that we have blind spots, Lord, make us see. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the eyes to look at our own lives and see places that we're trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in you. And Lord, give us the grace to see that we do not need to just work harder. It's not it. Lord, we need to trust better. Lord, we pray that we would give every aspect of our life up to you. Every aspect of who we are, everything we use as an anchor of our identity, apart from a child of God in Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would help us move it to the side. We thank you, Lord. Lord that it was your good pleasure that we would become part of your family and that this was your eternal purpose, that, Lord, we are part of something that is way bigger than us and goes all the way back to eternity past when you had us in mind and was realized in your son, Jesus Christ, who came and humbled himself even to the point of death, that we should live And because it's of his death and our forgiveness, Lord, we have boldness to come before you. We have access to come before you. And so, Lord, we pray for that same boldness and access to the people in our lives. Knowing, Lord, that if we're obedient to you, that you will give us favor even in the face of suffering. So it's our prayer, Lord, that we would not lose heart. That we would suffer well and that we would share in your glory. We thank you, Lord, for this message and for this word. We thank you, Lord, and we ask that this would just transform who we are. For we seek more than anything to be like Jesus and to want to be that way. It's in his name we pray. Amen. (laughs)